Hey, everybody. This is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast for the week of May 27th, 2021. I am here with filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. This week, we are going to be talking about the top-end business of the industry, mergers and acquisitions. We've got two big ones on the plate. One's happening. One's probably happening. We're going to be talking about them and how they affect you as a filmmaker. Then we're going to talk about the other end of the industry, getting your start in the beginning. And we've got sort of a techie, but not too techie, Ask No Film School about why are we still delivering HD to television these days, this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So our top story this week is two mergers. One's definitely happening, which is HBO Max is getting smooshed together with Discovery and getting peeled off from AT&T, which literally just bought HBO three years ago, like literally just three years ago. So like three years into a marriage, AT&T is like, actually, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I found someone else to marry you to, which is one way of getting a divorce, right? And on the other end of the spectrum, Amazon might be buying MGM. So... AT&T, big company, getting out of the owning HBO business, and Amazon, who has their own very productive studio, getting into the owning a movie studio business, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about HBO and HBO Max and Discovery first, and there's a few things that I think are really relevant to filmmakers here. One is, it is a great reminder, as always, that I I, uh, interviewed a a great doc filmmaker last week in my class. And, you know, one of the things he talked about is like, you know, doc has always had a thriving industry because there's so many TV networks where you can sell your documentary. So there's always a big buying market in documentaries. Like everybody who knows doc in documentary knows like there's certain price ranges that like, if you're like his particular doc sold to discovery, if you make a doc that might be interested, interesting to those platforms, you know, you, you can get between, you know, two and 500,000 in a sale. So if you can go out and make your doc for a hundred thousand and it is the kind of thing that those networks could be interested in, you stand a good shot of selling it to those networks because they're always hungry for content. But a lot of those TV networks that are doc heavy don't have a big streaming space, right? Like we don't think of disc, you know, there's no discovery plus right now, or if there is, it doesn't get the mind share that HBO max and Disney yeah, plus kind of thank God do. there's no discovery plus right now because <laughs> would be, Why? There's, a, there's already too many. I can't. Well, think. sure. But, the, but so what's exciting about this is by pushing these two together, whatever name it's going to be HBO max or, or HBO discovery or discover BO or whatever it is, is going to have a much bigger documentary platform and a much bigger unscripted component than it would otherwise. And that's good for filmmakers, especially nonfiction filmmakers and unscripted filmmakers, that as we move from the traditional cable model to the streaming model, there will be more buying power put towards unscripted content and it will expand that part of the brand. So I think that's good and relevant news for filmmakers to see one of the major players in the space being a huge unscripted player. Mm. I think that is sort of an interesting and relevant thing. I'm Um, just kind of surprised. I kind of want to like rewind because I didn't realize that HBO was owned by AT&T. 
And that also after a merger, people can reverse those mergers so quickly. I guess that makes sense. Like, sure, once you buy it, you can just like resell it anytime. But I'm just confused about what, like, the fact that HBO was owned by AT&T um, and why they would have made that purchase. Well, so everyone wondered the first thing. Everyone was like, AT&T, why are you buying HBO? So first off, to be clear, they didn't buy HBO. They bought Time Warner and Time Warner owned HBO. But the big, the big asset, right? Because Time Warner at this point, which is Warner Brothers Studios, Time Magazine and HBO, the big asset there was HBO, right? Like right. Warner Brothers has some properties. Time Magazine is it still a thing? I don't know. I haven't seen it in a checkout aisle in a while. But HBO was I the big asset. I once at a New York party met the Time Magazine science writer, as in there's now only one. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you met the Time Magazine. Like Time Magazine is now a person <laughs> that goes to parties, which is just as likely. So, I mean, there was a lot of wondering. There was a lot of like, what is the strategic value to AT&T for this? And the argument AT&T made at the time, which is stupid. But the argument they made at the time was that they viewed a future in which a lot of content streaming was on mobile, which the pandemic really, really made not true, right? Like, you know, Quibi failed because it's like, nobody, we're all at home. We're not going to watch a TV show on our phone when we could watch it on our TV. And Mm. this was going to give them some sort of like way to have more of that content exclusive to phones on AT&T's network. Like there was some idea that it would be like, you know, the first month the show was on H would be would only be available on like HBO Max and on your AT&T phone. And then a month later, it could go to variety, you know, that like one of the ways right. in which your phone providers right. would compete with each other would be the exclusivity of their content. Now, this is really stupid. People pick their phone provider primarily on like price. If you're willing to pay more to get better network access, you pay for Verizon. If you want to pay less and have shitty coverage, you get AT&T. If you want to pay even less and accept that your coverage will be completely unpredictable, you go T-Mobile. And that's like the deal. So it's like, it's it's really about what kind of coverage you're willing to put up with. It That does not seem like a differentiator to anybody who really thinks about it, but that was their argument. And then pandemic happened, and it's like, that's not an argument why anyone chooses cell phone service right now. Quibi died because everybody's like, no, 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 I just want to watch it on the biggest screen possible. And because Quibi was a ridiculous idea to begin with. You like, you don't do a startup paying for exclusively A-list talent. Like a startup only survives if you have like one A-lister and then a bunch of C-list budgets, but they were like A-list only. And it's like, well, yeah, you're going to pay through the nose for that, Quibi. And that's not how you actually get a new thing going. Anyway. So yeah, and you can always undo a merger if a merger doesn't work out, right? Like there was an AOL Time Warner 20 years ago. That's right. Which was I forgot always about that. A dumb, yeah, I mean, I feel like Time <laughs> Warner is a frequently, ironically, for having Warner Brothers be in the name, brothers implying like closeness and unseverability, Warner Brothers is a frequently married and divorced partner in the, I mean, maybe because in, in the end, they were always closer to the brother than they were to any other partner they ever found. But... <laughs> You know, they're marrying AOL, they're getting split off from AOL. Time is no longer a part of the name of the merger, although I think time is somewhere in the in there. Mm. And right now you know, it's Warner the, Media, yeah. Yeah. And it's and you can get you can go through the business divorce in all sorts of ways, right? Like it's a you can sell off a property. In this case, it's like selling it off. Like they're they're spinning it off into a new property. That property will be merged with Discovery. AT&T will keep a large amount of stock in the new property, but it'll be a separate management structure. You know, which is like when eBay spun off PayPal. 
eBay used to own PayPal and then they spun it off, but they still own a big chunk of it. It's just a separate business that gets to make decisions on its own. I mean, I think this is much, I think this is much smarter. I think there's a lot more. I see the case for HBO and Discovery in terms of content. Like they both do different things really well. A platform that has all of those things is going to appeal to a, lar- a much larger customer base. And I, I see a lot of smartness here. The other lesson for filmmakers is let us not remember the story of Jason Kalar. Now, I've never interacted with Jason Kalar. I have no personal opinions on Jason Kalar because of the nature of the story I'm about to tell. Jason Kalar is going to come off very sympathetically. I know nothing, like never worked with him, know nothing about him, could be a jerk. But in this story, he comes off like the underdog. In that, Jason Kalar ran Hulu successfully for a long time, ran Hulu so well that when this whole merger happened, was promoted to the head of AT&T Media. But then the AT&T and HBO Max merger and was like in charge of HBO Max, legitimately made a huge mistake in December. I don't know if this is the mistake that led to what is about to happen, but like when he made the decision to move all of HBO's, all of the Warner Brothers movies to streaming only without talking to the filmmakers first, like that's a mistake. The way it works in Hollywood is you call all the A-list directors first and all the actors and you talk to them before you make the announcement. He publicly announced that all the movies were moving to streaming first without talking to any of the directors first. And that is a huge strategic error that burns so many bridges. So, however, Mm. after that, the head of Zaslav, the head of Discovery, just emailed, like literally just sent an emoji-filled email to the head of AT&T and we're like, we should chat about like, what if you and I merged uh, HBO and Discovery? And then they just had like, you know, with like emojis. Like, I'm not even kidding. The New York Times has like the emojis. It's great. <laughs> but Jason Calaro didn't know this was happening. The head of HBO Max did not know HBO Max was getting merged with Discovery to be headed by the new head of Discovery, Zaslav, until like, th- I think the day the deal was announced. Wow. Which is a great reminder that people like... I don't want to say people can always be out to get you, but like pay attention to what is going on around you. And uh, business is business. Yeah, this is scary stuff. Yeah. I I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've had very (laughs) similar situations happen to me where you look around and when you realize it is happening, you also realize it is six months too late to do anything about it. Like the minute you realize, like the the thing about every action movie that I loved that Watchmen did, you know, in every 70s action movie, the the bad guy reveals their plan and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to do something. And you do something at the last minute. The beauty of Watchmen in 1985 is the bad guy reveals their plan and the good guys are like, we're going to do something. And the bad guy's like, I did this an hour ago. It's too late to do something. <laughs> Why would I tell late. you about it if, if you could still do something? I'm only going to tell. And like, this is another great example of most of... Like you have to work very hard to know when these things are going on. And because by the time you know something, it is often too late. By the time you're like, oh, this is happening. Usually there's literally nothing. Like all he did was hire the biggest uh, lawyer he could. Like he hired a famously powerful law firm that day. And uh, that is your only move at that point. Once this has happened to you, hiring lawyers, hiring the best lawyers you can hire is the lesson for filmmakers if this does happen to you, because it is, 
you know, it is a thing that happens. And now, like, I don't know if Kalar is officially out of a job yet, but mm. he is not in the org chart of the merged company. <laughs> and so I imagine he will be out of a job soon and they're just negotiating exactly what that will look like as he gets pushed out of the job. So there's lessons for filmmakers in the business half of it, I think, in the in the drama there. Oh, and they did a real, like, they did a real, like, I don't know. I think this borders on, mean is the wrong word, but like petty. So the Wall Street Journal asked Kalar if they could do a profile on him, on like how well he's running HBO Max. And he as executives do, send it to like the AT&T publicity department for approval. And the AT&T publicity department with the approval of AT&T CEO, knowing that he was negotiating to get rid of Kalar, approved it. And they could have shut it down. This happens all the time where you get announced by press and they're like, no, now's not the time. They let him be profiled by the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal wrote this like super fawning profile of him that went live on wallstreetjournal.com like two days before it was announced he was getting fired. Oh my God, this is so sad. Right? That's a little bit like, oh, that's awful. Because like, I know you fucked up the way in which the pin, but like the pandemic was hard and you moved everything to streaming and you didn't call everybody first, but you're making the decisions you got to make and it's a tough call. And yeah, right. Like at the end, you're like, ooh, that really, that's nasty. Like that's the one where I'm like, it would have been so easy for AT&T publicity to just say, actually, we don't think this is a good time strategically for you to do this Wall Street Journal profile. And like maybe Jason Kalar would have been pissed about it. Maybe they would have argued about it for a while in the article. And then two days later, he would have learned why. <clears throat> yes. But in, well, I mean, the article was written over like months. Oh, um, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, even if they'd slowed it down by a couple of weeks, they could have, mm. you know, they could have slowed it down, but they were like, no, go for it. Get this fawning profile written about you that will then go live like three days before you are publicly fired and find out of your firing. And it's not a firing. He's still technically an employee, but when an org, when when you are the head of something and a new org chart is announced and you are not on the org chart, that is something. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for my boyfriend to finish making a smoothie. Um, but also, just like <laughs> side note, this is like reminds me of like why I like hated playing Monopoly growing up because all the people who you think are your friends in Monopoly as the game progresses you learn are actually like turning against you and not going to be your friends anymore and now I feel like oh my god is this just what life is going to be like I mean look I I started a production company with friends from grad school I no longer am with that production company from my friends with grad school I <laughs> things get complicated in this mm. industry. I remember in grad school, one of my teachers saying, this is a weird industry for friendships. And I didn't exactly know what he meant. And like, I have two really good friends left from grad school that I still talk to all the time, but I just have two friends from grad school left that I still talk to all the time. Like it is a complicated industry. I think that, I yeah. mean, there's a lot of lessons for filmmakers in this whole story that I think, you know, I don't know if, I don't know what the sin is that Jason Kalar committed. I don't know if it was the sin of pride, the pride of thinking I can make this move for HBO Max without talking to the filmmakers first and mm. get away with it. I don't know what it is, the sin that, I mean, and that's just storytelling urges that want him to have committed a sin and be punished for it. 
it, it it's also just possible that sometimes sometimes it's legitimately not personal. Like he made he it's possible he made no mistakes and still just lost because he no yeah. longer fits what is needed. Yeah. But I think filmmakers should pay attention to stories like this. I mean, these are these are the way these things are done. And learning to ride these out and surf these waters is and I mean, here's the thing. Let's remember, Jason Clark is 99% likely not out of the game. Like, I don't know what is going to happen next with Jason Kalar, but I would be shocked if he is not at another streamer, at another media company, or doing something in five. Like, you know, this is this is the way these work. And then these work out. I mean, the only person I can think of whose career was ever really over was Martin Brest for directing Gili. And I've never seen Gili, but apparently it was bad <laughs> enough to completely destroy a career. Oh, but man. other than that, for the most part, you bounce back and you learn lessons. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to get in the media list. I'm going to start pestering his PR people to interview Jason Kalar. And in two years, I'll probably get one because I want to know what he feels like he's learned from all this. The other merger we should talk about, and this is hypothetical, but I think also has lessons for filmmakers, is Amazon is in talks to buy MGM. And Amazon already has a studio. They have physical studio facilities. They have content they're creating. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is one of their most prominent productions shot at Steiner Studios. I see folks from Miss Maisel in the elevator all the time. I see signs when they have their wardrobe sell off. But no, I will not tell you when it happens because I get to tell all my friends first. And oh, they actually yeah. don't do wardrobe sell-offs very often. They are considering purchasing MGM. And, and it's gotten to the stage where it's like being publicly discussed. Which is weird because usually these are pretty close to done before they're discussed. It's being discussed, but the price isn't final. The price is around $9 billion, which is funny because a couple of years ago, MGM almost sold to Apple for $6 billion, And everyone at the time was like, Apple's going to overpay for MGM at $6 billion. And it's like, $6 billion, $9 billion, these still seem low to they me. They do seem low to me. The, the key to remember is that the big MGM, you know, buying a studio is really about buying a franchise, right? Like uh, Amazon paid $1 billion for the rights to do Lord of the Rings because they want Lord of the Rings because it feels like a guaranteed investment, right? Netflix is willing to pay $450 million to do two new Knives Out movies because they feel like they're confident in that. There's only one major franchise still at MGM, and that is Bond. And that is a major franchise and one of the best, let's be honest. And, you know, I can't wait to see the one with Phoebe Waller-Bridge bringing a more modern sensibility to the character, which I think is very doable because she was one of the writers on the new one. That's right. But, yeah. But they don't own that franchise. The rights remain with the Fleming family licensed to the Broccoli family. Cubby Broccoli famously being the, you know, Brooklyn, New York producer who originally saw something in the Bond movies, built that franchise to be the behemoth that it is and his two children continue his film production company and films producing the bond movies so they have i don't actually know the details of their contract with fleming with the fleming family they don't own bond they have a contract for bond for all time with fleming i mean i think it would lapse in certain circumstances these deals are often like you have to get a movie made every x number of whatever or, or we get the rights back like sony has to make a spider-man every three years or marvel gets the right back that kind of thing i don't know how often they have to make bond but mm. you know it's the broccoli 
family are the people with the control bond, not MGM. MGM has been the distribution partner for the Broccoli family. And that's been a long ongoing relationship and one that hopefully everyone, I think everyone at MGM would certainly like to continue, but they don't own it the same way that like Marvel Studios owns Marvel, obviously owned by Disney, but like, you know, when Disney is buying Marvel or when LucasArts was bought for $4 billion, like, that seems low. That's very low. Lucas, yeah, owned all of Star Wars yeah. at the time. So it's like, this is, a lot of people are saying it seems like a high number. It maybe seems like a high number. However, Amazon Studios has not successfully really built a franchise yet. Their biggest hits have been like obvious one-offs or like indie darlings like Manchester by the Sea. They probably want a franchise. So it can make sense. Hmm. Where does the lesson in all this come for filmmakers? Well, the lesson yet again, and this is one that is relevant to think about, is our relationships to intellectual property. Intellectual property gets a horrible rap because every writer out there is like, well, the studios don't buy, you know, original concepts for movies anymore. And it's like, anymore, like, you know, the 20s and 30s were dominated by making the same Tom Mix cowboy movies and really racist Charlie Chan detective movies over and over and over again. You know, like it's this is not a new thing with Hollywood. Hollywood's always been obsessed with IP and property. The Bond movies go back to the 60s. And so finding things that could be IP because they are legitimately interesting and engaging. Like, you know, Broccoli went out, Cubby Broccoli went out and found... Bond. Like the books were a hit, but not necessarily a guaranteed going to be a movie franchise and developed that as a producer into a franchise. And there are the modern franchises have launched off original concepts. Like Fast and the Furious, yes, is a is point break with cars, but it was an original screenplay by David Ayer that then launched a franchise. So like you can't really go out and set out to write a franchise, but if you are thinking about approaching people to develop relationships with their content. IP is the big thing that people are remain interested in negotiating for after all this time. Sure. I feel like at a later on a later episode I'd love to discuss like so so say you've acquired, you know, some piece of content, rights to some piece of content or you've developed an idea but you're kind of, you know, how, how do you go about do you just cold call people to make appointments to pitch? Do you need to get an agent first to make appointments to pitch? Do you have to have a track record? Like if you have a real if you're sitting on a really great IP, can you get into those rooms? Or, you know, what does it take? Let us let us pick that up next week. Yeah, let's do it. Can you make a note in the calendar and that yeah. will be our conversation for next week? Yeah. Awesome. Moving on from, I used to always complain that every every story I ever heard about Hollywood business was always about like studios merging and negotiating your exit and stuff like that. And then we just covered that for the opening of the show. But, <laughs> you know, film industry business is also like, how do you get started? How do you survive in the beginning? And uh, Kath brought up a great subject for our separate topic today, which is what is the smartest first job you can get when you arrive in the industry and you are trying to get going? Do you want to do you want to expand on it? Yeah, just that I get that? this. 
I get this question a lot, particularly from folks that are just starting out or like just graduated. And also like my sympathies to those of you who are, who have graduated during a pandemic, because I know that's extra hard, but yeah, like, okay. So I know I have ideas. I'm creative. I want to make films or I want to at least get into the filmmaking industry, but having no experience and knowing that a lot of these jobs require some experience how do I start or what types of jobs should I be applying for? And yeah, I think it's a question that has many, many answers, but I know that when I was first starting out, I really did value just like hearing from as many people as possible how they got their start. Yeah. So I'm happy to share my, I mean, I'm happy to just talk from a personal place. unless Yeah, do it. Yeah. I mean, so, so like, let's just do origin stories. So I knew that I wanted to work in some sort of artistic realm. I had ideas for movies, but I'd never really, you know, hadn't made one since like just a high school video production class. And I had been, I had been living in Europe doing like a, just a grad program for like a year and had just moved back to the Bay area. And, um, so I had no connections to Hollywood whatsoever. So I, knew that I wanted to spend some time like writing creatively or trying to make films. So I took a job that a lot of people take at this point in time in their career. And I started working as a bartender. And it's a very common story, but it's a common story for a reason. That way I had time in the mornings to do some writing or during the daytime, if I wanted to like go out and shoot something. And then in the evenings I could still get paid and get a decent wage. And then I happened to meet a friend of a friend at a party a few months into my job as a bartender who had worked as a PA on uh, Blue Jasmine, Woody Allen movie, which we don't talk about anymore. But at the time it was like, oh my gosh, that's so huge. I totally want to work in movies. I don't care what kind of job. I just want to like get on a set, help me. And he said, I happen to be working on a short film coming up next week. Why don't you come and day play as a PA? So. Anyways, that was really helpful for me to have like my bartending job. And then as I started to get more PA gigs over the course of a couple of years, because it took a while to build that momentum, I still had some sort of steady income that I could rely on. And then as I was getting PA gigs, I could just go to my bosses and say, hey, my dream is finally coming true. I'm working in movies, so I can't work this or that shift. And they were like, great, that's awesome. Good for you. As long as you get it covered, you're fine. That's like my basic, you know, that's my background. Lots of people have different backgrounds, but Charles, what was your story? So I had the same sort of similar dilemma in that in between, you know, cause I had two phases. I had sort of the, I went to, I think grad school a little bit younger than you did. So I had my first phase, which was straight out of undergrad. What am I going to do? And then my second phase was straight out of grad. What am I going to do? And in my first phase, I got out of college at 20. I was a little young. And so like, I really knew very little about how the world worked. And I had this weird opportunity where a director that I'm still in touch with was shooting a feature film in the, in the place where I went to college the summer after I went to college. So I worked on that like for free, but like basically was one of the producers on it because I lived in the town. So I started working on it like six months before I graduated. He basically showed up to this college in the college town I went to and was like, do you have any film students? Let me meet him. And he met me 
And I just like came on board. So like a month after graduating, I was producing a feature film. Wow. And that's very lucky. <laughs> it was very lucky. And it distorted my perception of everything because it was like, oh, well, that just happened real quick. But then I wasn't on film set again for like a year after that because it wasn't the smartest thing I could have done. I didn't do, which is I should have when everybody packed up and went back to New York because this was Ohio, I should have immediately gone back to New York and, and kept in touch with all of those people from that shoot and seeing if they could have gotten me on other sets back in New York. But instead, I like drove around America for a year. Like I fixed motorcycles into Mexico for a bit. I worked in a bike shop in Houston. I mean, that also sounds really cool. It's amazing. I forget sometimes that I like lived in an old station wagon for a year and like saw stuff. Yeah. But it was pretty great. I'd never been to LA. I went to, I visited a friend in LA and like crashed on her. No, I didn't crash on her couch. I don't even remember where I slept in LA, but like I saw an old friend in LA. I like saw America, which was great. And then I was like, okay, now I'm ready to try and figure out how you get into film. Mm. So I showed up in LA. I emailed every alumni from my college who lived in LA because I knew no one, no one. My friend who, (laughs) my one friend in LA left LA to go to law school. So I knew no one. So I just like moved to LA was like, got the cheapest apartment I could on Craigslist and was like, I just emailed every alumni who, and asked for meetings and like three of them met with me and they were all very nice. And they were all like, we can't really help you now, but in like 10 years, we might be useful to you. Like one of them worked at Sundance. One of them was like a high-end production designer. Uh, They were very nice. They were like, yeah, we can't really do much for you, but like, like keep going kid. You'll be fine. And they were right. Like, I don't judge any of them. They were all great. I hope to run into them all again someday. But I had no idea how you got your start in film. I heard about this thing called the UTA job list. And one of those alumni yes. forwarded me the UTA job list. And so I got a hold of the UTA job list and I read it. And the, if you don't know what the UTA job list is, I don't know if it still exists, but it was. It does. I still get it every week. Yeah. It's like. It was a Word document then. It might be a PDF now, but it is like the most old school way in which people get hired for like assistant jobs. So it's not like assistant jobs don't show up on like Mandy or Craigslist or whatever. They show up on this like job list that gets emailed out once a week from UTA. And I applied to all of them while working at a bike shop because I knew how to fix bikes. I'd, I'd worked in bike shops in like Texas and in DC for a while and in undergrad I'd volunteered at a bike shop. So I got a job in a bike shop in LA so that I could make money. And then I emailed everybody on the UTA job list at night. And then finally I got an internship unpaid with a director's manager. And I started going into that internship and uh, while still working on a bike shop on the days I wasn't at the internship. And I learned about reading script coverage. And they had a bunch of scripts that I could read and write coverage. So I would read the scripts and write coverage. And then I was like, well, I want to get paid to do this because I'm not getting paid to do this for them. So I borrowed one of their guides to the industry, like LA411 or something like that. And which was, what is it? It's like, you know, every production company, agency, and management company in town. 
I borrowed that guide. I created a sample of my screenplay coverage that I'd written in this internship. And I would spend all of my lunch break using the fax machine at my internship. And I faxed like 500 companies. That's amazing. Script reading coverage. I got three very angry return faxes where people (laughs) were like, like took the time to write out and return fax me. (laughs) Like, how dare you fax me 20 pages unsolicited and waste my toner, (laughs) which is great. I mean, frankly, if I got a 20 page unsolicited fax today, I'd probably do the same. But I got hired by Creative Artists Agency and Appian Way to read scripts. So someone at CAA read your coverage. Yes. And based on the reading of my coverage, hired me as a script reader. And Appian Way, which was Leonardo DiCaprio's company, which is the best looking company I've ever worked for in my life. I only went to like three or four in-person meetings, but I went to an in-person meeting once and everyone looked like a model except me. (laughs) And Leo's brother, who's like a perfectly nice looking person, but isn't like... Leo. Isn't Leonardo and, DiCaprio? <laughs> yeah. Like he's not, he's not like an ogre. He's like a perfectly handsome man, but like he's not like Leonardo DiCaprio. But literally everyone else, from like the head of the company, this like beautiful, powerful woman, to like every single other person, including the three other script readers in the meeting. And I was like, you guys, I you guys are script readers? Is this the <laughs> expectation for script readers? Do I need a haircut? Oh, like it was a it was a fascinating meeting. It was a fascinating meeting. I really love, I love this story because like you had this incredible opportunity in your last year of undergrad. And then right after that, it, you know, it still didn't necessarily lead to the next thing. Right. So like every, every time a job ends, it's a new sort of hustle. And yeah, with this whole, I I just like really admire the cold sending script coverage (laughs) to 500 places. And yeah. And then like applying to everything on the UTA job list. That's totally, totally what it takes. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't live in LA. I lived in the Bay area, but similarly, like anytime I got off a job, I would just email every single person that I had connected with on that job and say, it was great working with you. Hope to work with you again. Here's my resume just in case you need it. And then if I didn't get a job within a month or two months, I would just keep sending out emails like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, the trick is the gentle touch, right? The trick is the like, you just gently remind people. And now you can do it much more easily with Instagram, but you just gently remind people you exist. You don't email people and be like, hey, motherfucker, do you have a job for me? If not, fuck off. It's like, (laughs) you just email and you're like, hey, what's going on? You got anything going? Shaking the tree. What's, What's shaking? What's happening? Like, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you make business cards, and when you meet people on set, you still hand over physical business cards. Man, I haven't told that story about emailing, about faxing 400 companies in like 20 years. <laughs> Creative Artists Agency, they probably don't do this at the time, but they also would let you do as much script reading as you wanted. Like, you know, uh, Appian Way, Leo's company, like once every week or two, they'd email you and be like, do you want to read something? And then they'd send it to you. You'd read it and write up your coverage and send it back. But creative artists, you could literally just go in and take 10 scripts. There was always a stack of scripts. There was no limit. Like, I think you could have like four out at a time, but like you could then bring those four back the next day and take out four more. And so there was a while where I was like, because you only get paid like $60 a script. But I was like, mm-hmm. you know what I'm going to try and do? I'm going to make an entire living reading screenplays for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing experience. I'm really, really glad I went through that. Um, yeah. I think you learn a tremendous amount. 
also you just get encouraged because so many scripts that are being read and evaluated at creative artists are still so, so, so bad. (laughs) Um, That I read one great script while I was there, which got turned into a good movie. I read two okay scripts that were there that both got turned into bad movies. And then nothing else I read while I was there went anywhere and it shouldn't have. Yeah, I think that's that. That is, I also I read scripts for festivals, which does not even pay as well as reading scripts for CAA. But um, <clears throat> in fact, it pays almost nothing. But uh, it is still a very valuable experience just to see, like, wow, you know, I can do this too. You know, it's not. There are plenty of people out there that are just doing their best. It's not that great, and uh, but they're still submitting, and they're still you know, getting it yeah. on people's desks. Yeah. They're still out there finding a way to get it to creative artists and jobs like that lead to all sorts of weird places. At one point, a producer liked my coverage of his script and hired me to do a draft of it. And like his script was great. write it? Yeah. Um, wow. Which was crazy. That never happens. That That's not an <laughs> anecdote I should tell because most coverage readers will say that's <laughs> not going to happen. Um, and we didn't end up finalizing the deal. We had a whole bunch of meetings about it. And then his take and my take never quite aligned on where it should go. Mm. But it was a great script, and every two or three years after that, I would email him again to see if the rights opened up, because I still think it is a great script. And yeah, it also, like, script coverage can eventually lead. I got hired to do story consulting for the worst movie ever made. It's on Rotten Tomatoes now. It's called Delgo, (laughs) D-E-L-G-O. I think it's like a 1.1 Rotten Tomatoes score out of 100. (laughs) And I got hired by the, you guys all know the dude from The Big Lebowski is a real person. His name is Jeff Dowd. And he's one of those people who just like floats around the industry. Never met him in person. He only called me when he was in a dentist's chair, but somehow he got my info. He called me. I could hear like the dental hygienist in the background being <laughs> like, please stop talking on the phone. We're like, you know, suctioning your whatever. And he hired me to do story consulting for Delgo. And he was like, man, the script's got problems. Really give it to him. And I read the script and I was like, this script got problems. And wait, I gave wait, it to wait. him. The dude. Or From like, the Big Lebowski. He's based on a real, sorry, he's, he's based I on mean, a real yeah. person? He's, he is, a, I mean, it is more than based on. It is, I mean, Jeff Dowd is the dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's like a notorious Hollywood. Um, he's just a guy who seems everywhere in Hollywood. He's one of those magic Hollywood people who just seems like, how did the company that made Delgo decide he was the guy to hire to find a story consultant? Who knows? But for whatever I made on it, I'm sure he made four times as much. Like, he's just one of those mystery Hollywood figures who's everywhere. Wow, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. The dude is real. That is and I worked for him. (laughs) (laughs) And they took none of my story notes and the movie was bad. If they had taken my story notes, the movie (laughs) might have been slightly better. But the movie was was gibberish. (laughs) They'll go. I can't wait to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, please don't. Please, please save that. So, yeah, I mean, that's my experience of starting out in the industry. I remember once when I was in grad school... We had a writer's manager come in and the writer's manager was basically like, so you have two choices when you get out of here. You can either get on a desk and be an assistant, but you'll never write, or you can do something else that lets you write. Those are your two choices. And you can go get on a desk, but I tell you what, my assistant doesn't write and I, and I don't know when they would. And I thought that was really great advice from that manager, Michael Bondrezian still remember his name 20 years later. So it is, it is a choice, right? By being a script reader, 
I had the time to write. My expenses were very low. My rent was like 600 a month. Like uh, in LA at the time you could get dollar tacos. Like I really just lived on like riding my bike to the beach on weekends, reading and writing. Yeah, that sounds if, really nice. But I, and I still met some industry people through it. Being an assistant, you'll work 60 hours a week. You'll meet everyone. It's You won't write as much. Kind of considering quitting my job and just reading scripts. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how... I, I From what I hear, you know all of those great memes that are like, look at how rent has gone from here to here in the last 20 years and minimum wage hasn't changed. From what I hear, they still pay exactly what they paid 20 years ago. Sure. Like, I think totally. it's still like $60 a script. So PAs I don't, and still I don't, make the same. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know... Like literally when I was reading a creative artist and it was $60 a script, you know, I needed to get 20 scripts a month to survive. And that was like five or six scripts a week. That's and doable. Like, it was totally doable. And yeah. creative artists, like creative artists at the time, you could like go in and take as many scripts as you wanted. I doubt they still do that. Cause also you got to remember, this is all pre the digital era. Scripts weren't digital then. Nowadays, a script writer can live all over the world. They're never going to let one script reader read that many scripts because you're no longer, they, they used to be limited only to the people willing to go to their office in Beverly Hills to pick up physical screenplays. Now they can hire a script reader in Cleveland, a script reader in Winnipeg, a script reader in, you know, yeah, life it's a is great, great pandemic job. Yeah. So I doubt. Yeah. I mean, look, if, yeah. I would yeah, say I, to you also, because I, I get really frustrated when people talk about like, oh, there's this like secret document that floats around and that's how I got a job. And there's no way to know how to get access to that secret document. I will just say I receive the UTA job list once a week because I am a part of a group called Women of Color Unite, which if you are a woman of color and someone who works in the media industry, you can Google them. It's very easy to join. It's not like an exclusive club. So that's that's how I get the UTA job list. I'm not sure how other people get it. I'm sure that like if you're part of any sort of like listservs or groups on Facebook or you know email lists, someone in one of those groups probably has access to it and you could probably like cold email or like just email the group and ask does anyone have the UTA job list. There's also a document that I used to look at when I was first starting out called Production Weekly which is like a list of all of the studio productions happening or about to happen or like in, in pre-pro, possibly even in development, but I think it's just starting from pre-pro with like numbers for all the production companies or producers that are involved. So you could call or email and just say, hey, I'm interested in this type of position. Please forward my resume to whoever is reviewing. And I never got a job that way, but I did get like, I did like make some connections that way just because I would end up, you know, I'd continue to call the production companies for the shows that I was interested in. And I'd keep talking to the same assistants. Production Weekly, I don't know. I think you might have to pay for that one. I think you have to pay to see the contact details of Production Weekly. Right. That's another one where I just like threw a friend of a friend, met someone who now continues to forward me production weekly, like every other week, 10 years after I met her. <laughs> like I've, I haven't really like sp- spoken with her since, but somehow she just still sends me these emails and I'm very grateful. Yeah. Make connections. That's all. So asking a film school this week, 
Douglas Brian Miller asks, I noticed that television and cable delivery packages still ask for 1080p or even 720p. What? My work is all edited and graded in 4K for YouTube and Vimeo, but whenever I do broadcast, they only want 1080. What is going on? People don't even want a 4K as a future-proof backup? Brian, this is a great question, and I love talking about it. And the reason why is that everyone forgets that other technologies move much faster than broadcast television moves, and that broadcast television is never going to... Like, I remember once my buddy was like, ooh, I want to get 120 hertz TV because I watch a lot of sports and I hear it's going to look better for sports. And I was like, but you know, they still shoot sports in 30 frames per second. So even if your TV does 120 hertz, like it doesn't matter. And he's like, what? The dude at Best Buy was totally telling me. And I was like, ignore whatever the people at Best Buy tell you. The thing to remember about television is that it is a big, huge infrastructural investment for it to change. So we had standard definition television in this country for years and years and years. And we were supposed to get HDTV for 10 years before we got it. And every year they would push back another year or two the date we were going to make the switch. When we finally made the switch from SD to HD, the FCC still had to spend out millions of dollars worth of vouchers to people who still had standard definition TVs to help them switch over. Billions of dollars worth of infrastructure has to be invested to make that switch. And I know you're thinking, well, you know, once you've done 1080, do we have to, it should be easier to go 4K, but it's actually like, it's every transponder, every network, every network hub, every local studio facility, all of that has to pay to upgrade. And they're only going to do it if a regulatory body forces them to, right? The FCC forced the switch from standard definition to HD because none of them have a financial incentive to do it right now. If all of their competitors are HD, why are they going to go 4K, right? Like, especially because 4K is actually really hard to see on TV sizes. I know that if you pixel peep, if you get in there and you start zooming, you can see a big difference in 4K and 1080. But like I regularly teach on a 20-foot screen and I'll show 1080 content and 4K content on a 20-foot screen on a 4K projector Properly mastered, it is very hard to tell the difference between 1080 and 4K on a 20-foot screen when you're sitting in a theater. 4K is great, but it is not good enough over HD to be worth billions of dollars investment if there's not a big push coming from consumers. So if you're a TV network, your engineers are sitting around thinking, all right, it's probably 5 to 10 to 20 years before we're going to move over to 4K. If ever, if broadcast TV is still a thing by the time 4K becomes a thing, and when we switched from HD from SD to HD, all they took did with their old standard definition content is they just upscaled it using like Genom chips or some other fancy upscaler, a Snell and Wilcox machine to make it broadcast in HD. So if you deliver your HD now, especially because it's so hard to see the difference, they'll just use some sort of upscaling technology to make it look good in 4K in the future. And it costs them four times as much to store it now because 4K files are four times as big as HD files. So they don't want to spend the money to upgrade all the technology and they don't want to spend the money to start uh, archiving four times as much media if they're not using it. If you're only broadcasting 1080 and you're not going to want to start saving hours and hours and hours of 4K footage and spending four times as much on your archive. So for now, broadcast TV is still expecting you to deliver 1080 
and 1080 is likely to stay where broadcast TV is into the foreseeable future. Your streamers, your Netflixes, your HBO Maxes, they're all going to want a 4K because they actually can show 4K over their pipes because it's just the internet. It's not about the whole infrastructure of television. And so, you know, you can go on and watch something on HBO Max that's mastered in 4K on your 4K TV through the HBO Max app. But if you then switch over to your cable broadcast for HBO, you're probably going to see it in 1080. And depending upon how your TV is set up, you might not see a difference because that is the reality for those two resolutions. Now, you might see a difference, but that difference might not be because of the difference between 1080 and 4K. That difference might be because the 1080 signal coming over cable is a weak signal or because your HBO Max signal is highly compressed. If you remember a couple of years ago when there was a Game of Thrones thing on streaming where it looked too dark, it, a lot of that had to do with how many people were watching it were causing bandwidth issues, which caused it to macro block. So even though it was quote unquote 4K, it probably looked much lower resolution on streaming than it did on cable. So, you know, we're in this new world of 4K and someday even 8K delivery, but that'll really be for the streamers for a long time. And you're still going to want to make a really nice 1080 for the broadcast cable networks, just because their pipeline is going to stay 1080 for just a long, long time. Like it is unlikely that they're going to upgrade anytime soon. The bigger difference in my mind is the move to HDR delivery. I think that is way more likely to happen than 4K. I mean, I think we'll probably see when they pay to upgrade to HDR, 4K will come with it. But I can tell you on my personal TV at home, I can more dramatically notice the difference. We have the the copy of Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon. I have a three-year-old. The copy of Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon we have is HDR. And every time I watch it with my daughter, I find myself thinking, this is so nice looking. And it's a beautifully shot movie, Shaun the Sheep, great content but it's also an HDR master and you really notice it in a way that the brightness range is almost more important than the, than the resolution range. All right. That has been this week on the no film school podcast. I'm Charles Hayne. Check out my work, including a web series called salty pirate, which is all about business shenanigans for artists and how unprepared we are for some things. Saltypirate.tv. And you can check out the rest of my work at charleshane.com and we got more good stuff coming. So yes, I am Kath Tolentino, filmmaker, I also program for a couple festivals and run my own production company, Border Woman Pictures. You can find me online at katherinetolentino.com and my production company, borderwoman.pictures. That's B-O-R-D-E-R, woman.pictures. 